0: Not long ago, I was teaching from the book of Galatians. And I was taken with the passion that I felt in Paul's voice as he wrote the first part of this book. It seems he had just been told that there were problems in Galatians. And so he writes a letter to those folks back there. Can you hear Can you hear the passion, the feeling he has? As he writes this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. As I read that, I thought, you know, they are turning to a different gospel, which is, Really, no gospel at all. If if that is the case, then doesn't it sound to reason that there are certain aspects of the gospel that are the gospel, and that when you drift away from those, you're caught up in those winds of doubt and confusion that Paul writes about in Ephesians. And so I decided. I wonder what the what what constitutes the true gospel of Christ. And I asked those in my Sunday school class that Sunday, tell me, what do you think constitutes the true gospel of Christ? And I turned to the board and I was going to write them down as they gave them to me. And there was great confusion. And so I thought, well, if those folks don't know, And if I don't know, and I've been teaching Sunday school for a jillion years, is it this or this or this? I, I could name a lot of things. I knew the language of Christianity. But did I know how to filter out those things that I just thought from those things that were a must? Is that important? Well, Paul seemed to think so. For he says, as I've already said, I say it again. If anybody is preaching you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Even if that somebody is an angel, he says. This is serious stuff, I thought to myself. And if that is the case, then why is there such confusion? and confusion there is. In his book, Dealing with Those Things Every Christian Should Believe, William Evans wrote, The ignorance among Christians regarding the fundamental doctrines of their faith is surprisingly great, widespread, and alarming. Definite knowledge and instruction in other and far less important spheres of life are being insisted upon. Why not then in the highest realm, that of man's religion? Ignorance in any sphere of life is calamitous. In religion, it is fatal. Ignorance of what we believe is fatal. And then Herschel Hobbes. Those of you that are old time Baptists know Herschel Hobbes. He's, you know, he, he, he just, he was just Baptist through the core. He wrote the Baptist faith and message that we uh, have in our church. And Herschel Hobbes said this in, in a speech he made at Oklahoma Baptist University. He talks, he says, you know, Baptist, he's talking about us. Not the Methodists out there, or the Presbyterians, or the Episcopalians. He's talking about Baptists. He said, Baptists have become a people who do not know who they are. The result, he declared, is that our trumpets give strange and uncertain sounds. Some give the note of compromise, which threatens the fiber of our faith. Others sound the note of creedalism, which endangers our freedom of thought in favor of a rigid conformity to rote orthodoxy. Neither of these is conducive to the living faith of our fathers. And so I thought to myself if, if, if doctrine is that important, why don't we ever hear about it? If doctrine is that critical, Why are we so confused about it? And so I decided I'd just write a book. I would just write down what that... I was going to write the answer. So I wrote a book, which nobody read, but... (laughs) Anyhow, I wrote it. I read it. I called it the DNA of Christianity. I talked about the fact that one of the arms of that DNA helix was constituted on what we believe in order to be saved. And the other was, what will we need to believe to live out our faith? Because you see, I'm always one that believes you. we're not to put a period where God has put a comma. After salvation, there is living out of the faith. Well, I just had the privilege of teaching Galatians again. This time, I read this. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. I thought, how many times in history has that very phrase, the righteous shall live by faith, provided the impetus for reformation? And then I came across this written by a man by the name of Hedgecraft. And he said this, The importance of essential Christian doctrine can hardly be overstated. First, they're the very doctrines which form the line of demarcation between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the cult. What we believe forms the line of demarcation between the kingdom of God, and the cult. And while we may debate non-essentials without dividing ourselves over them, when it comes to the essential Christian doctrine, there must be unity. And he says that's where the maxim comes from. It goes all the way back to the days of Martin Luther. In the essentials unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. And in all else, charity. He says essential doctrine is the north star by which the course of Christianity is set. Just as the north star is an unchanging reference point by which sailors safely guided their ships, so essential Christian doctrine has safely guided the church through the doctrinal storms that have sought to sink it. How many times has the church struggled with the winds of false doctrine? How many times has it come through? Because there have been those who unashamedly hold to the essentials of our faith. Essential doctrine, he says, is the foundation on which the gospel of Jesus Christ rests. From his deity to the eschatology, certainty that he will appear a second time to judge the living and the dead, essential Christian doctrine is foundation to the gospel. All other doctrines confuse compromise, and contradict that that we are to believe. And so I've decided, maybe I need to do my book again. I've learned so much more than I knew when I wrote it the first time. There is important stuff to know about these essential doctrines. We are at risk at the denomination if we do not know them. Christianity is not at risk because God is in charge of Christianity, but we as a people stand at risk if we don't know in whom we believe, what we believe, and why we believe it. As a historian, I realize that whatever the time, whatever the place, there are two basic themes which have marked man's relationship with the divine these themes are the need to know god and the need to worship him whatever god you choose look at any look at any civilization at any tribe they have their divine they have that that they worship and they have the way they worship them they give them many different names they worship him in many strange ways but the history of man is caught up in those two things. Anytime he looks up into the night sky and wonders at its silent mystery, he wonders, how did those stars get there? Anytime he watches the waves as they break across the shores, he wonders, where did they come from? What mystery do they tell? Anytime he looks into the face of a newborn baby, he wonders. Where does life come from? And where does it go at death? He wonders. He ponders. Atheist, agnostic, Christian, Buddhist. It matters not. They all wonder. They all ponder. Because I believe that in the creation, God placed into our DNA the need to know him. He formed us. He breathed life into our nostrils. And because of the gift of life, he also gave us the need to know, the need to wonder the need to ponder. It's an impulse to understand, to identify and to worship that mysterious source which controls all of creation. And it's strong within us. And though although many have denied its existence, none have been able to hide successfully their wonder by donning either The coat of intellectualism or the coat of spiritualism, for these are just coats of many colors. In spite of his age-long quest yet, he still doesn't understand it. He's still confused about it. What do we believe? Why do we believe it? Now, if this thing will write, and if it will erase, that's more important than whether it writes. I love this continuum. The, The preacher stole it from me. I don't know why he would do that. But this is our lifeline, and every one of us have a lifeline. It defines our life space. We find ourselves somewhere on that space. Before us is infinity. We were in the mind of God before the mountains were formed. That's what Scripture tells me. It defines it the fact that God knew me. God created me for a purpose. And I am to live out that purpose. That's, that's what this line tells me. But then there's another line. It goes out there. It, it doesn't have a point on it either. It also has an arrow ahead because it is also infinity. It goes the rest of the way. And we find ourselves right here. And so I'm going to define right here as the point of our salvation. What doctrine was essential for our salvation? What did we absolutely have to know? What did we absolutely have to do What is critical? What is is non-debatable for our salvation? That's a question. And that's a question that man has worried about for years. I think the first thing, the first thing we have to do is we have to understand that there is a God. And that we have to understand that we're not Him. There is a God, and I am not he. I have to understand that. And that God is in control of all of this from eternity to eternity. The Alpha, the Omega of all of history. And so the advice Joshua gave to the Israelites at is Shechem remains sound these, these many years later. He said to those people, Choose... For yourself this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river, way back yonder. You're going to serve those gods. You keep wanting to go back to them. You're going to serve those gods. Or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the God who created this whole thing. That's a decision everyone has to make. Am I going to serve the gods of mammon? Am I going to serve the gods of materialism? Am I going to serve the many, many gods? Am I going to grab a god out of the woods or the trees? Man has he's captured them everywhere. He's looked up into the sky and he said, I think I'll worship the stars or the moon or the sun. He's looked into nature and he says, I think I'll worship the trees or the volcanoes or even the sea. The many temples that he has erected, the many altars he has built, all declare that he is in search of God. But they also declare that he's confused about just who God is. What's the first thing? It may be antecedent to salvation, but it is critical to salvation. There is a God. He is the God of creation. There is a God. The Alpha and Omega of all eternity. And he is a God that is too omnipotent to be captured in any man-made image. He's too omnipotent. I can't carve him out of stone and say this is God. No, he's I can't do that. Way too powerful for that. A God who is too omnipresent to be enshrined in any man made temple. I can't I can't capture him in the first Baptist church of Belton and say, God stay there. We don't want the Methodists to have anything to do with you. We can't do that. And yet and yet the Israelites tried to do that but he was everywhere look up into the sky and there is God look into the depth of the ocean and there is God look wherever you want to look and there is God that's the God right here and he's too omniscient to be manipulated by any human cult that's the God He's the God who created man in his own image and he is also the God who came to earth in the image of man to die on the cross for the sins that we have committed. The cross of wood cut from the forest of our sins. But if you choose that God then you also choose the living image of that God and that is Jesus Christ and that is the only God that is worthy of worship. So that's our first thing. We need to know that there is a God. And then we need to believe that he is capable of everything he says that he can do, we have to believe in his power. we have to stand awestruck beneath the stars and worship the God that placed them there. We need to see seek honestly the truth about god we don't we don 't need to be afraid of knowing about God and if we truly seek to know about God, ultimately, even science will bow its knee to the Creator. For He is God. But, we've got a little problem here. If we seek God, if we wonder about God, If we seek His eternal truth, it will ultimately lead us to a door, which causes us to ponder this question that the Apostle Paul pondered. The question is, how can man, who is by nature sinful, win the favor of God, who is holy? Now, that's a good question. And so throughout time, man has tried to win the favor of God. But what he's done is he's done everything on this side of the equation. He has kept the law. He has done good works. He has built his temples. He's built larger temples. By his works, he has sought to appease God. He's put his efforts all on the wrong side of the equation. Paul was like that. In his earlier life, he tried to build a ladder from earth to God with each rung representing yet another sacrifice or yet another law. But even while building that ladder, He yearned for a God that no law book could provide. He ultimately found his God. He ultimately found the answer to the question, how can man, who by nature is sinful, win the favor of God, who is holy? You know what his answer was? His answer was, he cannot. He cannot without the conduit of grace. It is grace that lets you pass this barrier. Not all the works in the world. It is grace that leads you past this barrier. So where the works go is on this side of the equation. Because the grace and the faith in God leads to works. Works do not lead to salvation. Salvation leads to works. Paul discovered that. Paul understood that. And when he realized that was the case, he also realized that the God to whom he could not build his ladder to heaven had instead come down from heaven to him. And it transformed the Apostle Paul. Has it transformed us? Have we realized the magnitude of the fact that we cannot build a ladder to God, but God comes down to us? Measly, little, sinful Wallace Davis the God who threw those stars up into the sky, the guy, the God who formed those mountains, the God who who filled that ocean that I just sailed on came down so that I could be saved. Oh, but man says, I want to do something. can I do something? Man doesn't like to have it all done for him. God, let me do something. Let me do something to earn my salvation. And God says, no, your salvation's free. But you can't do something. You must do something. Some action on your part is required. Well, God, what must I do? Well, you must believe. That's what you must do. If you do not believe in the God of creation, if you do not believe in the Christ of Calvary, then all the works in the world that you do will not lead you to heaven. What must you do? Well, you must believe. And so, the answer to Paul's question, the answer to our question, is the gift, and it is a free gift, of grace. And Paul was so taken with that, he he wrote the entire book of Galatians to proclaim the gospel of grace. A book to proclaim a simple little gospel. Simple, my goodness gracious. But it's a Magna Carta that frees us from the abuse of Man-made laws. The abuse from anything that tries to interfere with our access to God. To Paul, grace guided him step by step into Christianity's holy of holies. Have we been there? Grace became the nerve center of his understanding of the gospel. It became the door leading to the miracle of justification, the foundation for the writing, and the answers to all of his questions. And he declared to him, there can be no second-class citizens because once you cross that line, you are now a new creature in Christ. You are no longer the old, but you're now the new. And it makes no difference what your color, your creed, your gender. You're all new. You're all equal in Jesus Christ. And anyone, anyone who tries to argue against that has not really understood the power of the gospel. Paul said, it's grace and it's trust. These are the centers of the Christian religion. Grace and faith. The only way out of humanity's entanglements. A faith centered in belief in Jesus Christ. A faith that involves both the willingness to take Jesus at his word and the belief that Jesus can and will do everything he says he will. It's a faith so simple that even the unlettered Can grasp it. And yet it is a faith so profound that even the most powerful intellect must confess that it's one of God's great mysteries. How many times have you read Scripture, and each time you walk that path, you learn something new? It is one of God's great mysteries. It is a faith that allows you to understand both the privileges and responsibilities of that thing we bandy about called the priesthood of the believer. If you are a believer, you have the right to go to God. But if you have the right to go to God, you have the right to take God to others. You are a member of a royal priesthood. And it's a faith that provides a constant stream of righteousness that flows from Christ to a penitent and believing heart, a faith that has a constant stream of righteousness now on this side of the equation. And out of that righteousness, we harvest the fruits of the Spirit. Put the things on the right side of the equation. No longer do I have to say, Lord... Which law have I broken? No longer do I have to say, Lord, which sacrifice must I make? Now I say, I believe in the Lord. And now I say, I belong to the Lord. Paul said, I, I, I died to the law so I might live to God What he was saying, is, I died to thinking this would take me to God, and now then I understand that I live on this side because of God. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. While many realize they have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, many are confused as to the proper way to return to God's favor. Some say, I can do it by myself. I once knew a deacon in the Baptist church who really believed that he could earn God's favor by himself. I wonder how he ever passed the test. I guess they didn't give a test. I remember when when I became a deacon, they gave a test. I don't think he passed the test. Well, it's a wonderful, wonderful truth. I've got to write that book. Because God's got me. And he says to me, every time you read the book of Galatians, you learn something new. Share it. Share it. Well, thank you all for letting me share it today.